Well, good morning. My name is Jacob Smith. I'm the teaching pastor here at our Southwood campus, and I wanna welcome you to Grace. Uh, this morning, uh, we are going to be talking about really the foundation of our faith. Uh, and this is because it's really important for us as we grow and as we mature to, to remember kind of where we come from, right? Foundations are really important. My wife and I have been married for just over three and a half years. We've been together for just about 17 years, which means that we're a year away from having spent actually more of our lives together than apart. And when that happens, when that ratio shifts, I don't know, like I, someone should tell me uh, what to expect because it's, it's a big one. But in that time that we've had together, uh, it's still fun and it's, it's encouraging for us to occasionally just remember our firsts, right? To remember how things began. We have a picture pop up on our phone or we just, we reach our anniversary or we get to a birthday and we all do this, right? We think back on, wow, I remember that birthday. I remember, you know, this thing that happened in this relationship or in this workplace. Like we remember our first kiss. Or we remember the first time we told each other that we loved the other person and Ooh, you know, I'm still a little jittery. Like it's, it's just, there's all these really fun things. We remember having our first child, right? Our daughter eight years ago. And it's not that those things fade. It's not that that power is lost over time necessarily, right? You can have your first child and be so excited. And, and when you have your, maybe your second child, it's not like you get in there and you're like, oh, this again? Okay, you know, like it's still exciting. It's still invigorating, but there's always still a power in remembering those first things, to remembering those beginnings. And for me, I find a lot of comfort and encouragement in remembering beginnings, especially in times of difficulty and trial and struggle. Just even over the last week and a half, we had a really tragic loss in our church family. One of our incredible Anderson campus elders passed away unexpectedly, suddenly, and it was, it was terrible. Death is a terrible, terrible thing. And so I was focused on that, on the funeral that we had on Wednesday that I was a part of. That was my focus for the beginning of the week. And my plan was that on Thursday, the day after, that I'd kind of get into the groove and that I'd work on my original plan, which was to prepare a message for this morning, talk about the mission and the vision for Grace Southwood. But I'll tell you that when I got into my office on Thursday, as I sat down and began to read and began to pray, I just, I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't stay the course. I couldn't stick to my original really good plan. And I had this, this, this wrestling in my spirit. I had this, this, this lack of peace in my mind, in my heart. And as I was trying to grasp this, you know, like let's get a few points and some illustrations and an application. I just, I, it was beyond me. And I felt led by the Lord to just come back to the basics. Because again, for me, that is so encouraging. And we're all different, but I would, I would probably guess that many of us, we need those sort of basics. We need those foundations, especially in times of trial. And so I found myself reading and rereading John 1. Because when I'm in high difficult situations or traumatic events, I, I need to just go to Jesus. I just need to read about him or read his words. That, that's, that's where I have to be grounded. And so I was reading John 1 over and over again. And I felt led by the Lord that, that that's just, that's where we're gonna be today. So this morning, we're gonna be talking about 
the beginning. We're gonna be talking about focused upon the foundation of our faith in John chapter one, verses one through 18. So I'd encourage you, if you have your Bible, to turn there or go there on your phone. We're gonna have the verses on the screen as well. But John chapter one, verses one through 18, is this introduction to the foundation, this focus upon the foundation of our faith. It is written so that we might remember why we're here, how church is even possible, how worship and prayer and communicating with the Lord, how that is all made possible. And it's, it's contained, the answer is given to us, the history is presented in John chapter one. So if you would read with me in John chapter one, starting in verse one, which tells us this. John says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was fully God, and the Word was with God in the beginning. Now, as John was writing this letter, as he's, he's beginning this gospel, this account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, he's writing to an audience that he knows is, there's a lot of Hebrews, there's a lot of Jews in his audience that are gonna be reading this account and so knowing that, John is actually beginning uh, with a statement that is just earth-shattering for them. He's, he's flipping the script on its head. He's shocking them with his opening line. John says, in the beginning. And for all of his Jewish audience, they would immediately think, in the beginning, God. Like they would be immediately thinking of the Genesis creation account. They'd read it, they'd learned it, they'd memorized it, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning, right? That very first book, the book, the, the message written by Moses that, that was literally, they called it in the beginning. That's the Hebrew name for the book of, that we call Genesis was just in the beginning. In the beginning, God. And yet right here, what John does, he says, in the beginning, and just as his audience is like filling in the blanks of like, eh, God created, he says, the word. They're like, whoa, what? What's happening? It'd be like if someone walked out onto a baseball field before the game and just started belting out, oh, say, can you tell me what you want, what you really, really want? You know, like that's not expected. John is just immediately shocking them with this statement. In the beginning was the word. And so the natural question that comes from his audience is, okay, hold on. The only one we've heard about in the beginning is God. So they're immediately gonna ask two questions. They're gonna say, is this word was this word with God or was this word actually God? And to that either or, John says, yes. Right? He gives that like sassy teacher answer to the either or question. He says, yes. The word was with God and the word was fully in his own right, God. And, and when he talks about the word being with God, it's more than just coexistence. This is one of those mornings where I, I kind of, I just wish that we all, we're fluent in ancient Greek. I mean, I'm not fluent either, but like, I wish we were all fluent in ancient Greek because the intentionality and the specificity of John's language, the beauty of the terms and the language that he uses in John chapter one. I mean, all of scripture is inspired, but John one, one through 18 is like an extra dose of inspiration because when he talks about this idea of the word being with God, he's speaking about more than just proximity. He's talking about an orientation. He's talking about the same way that, that if I was about to charge a battlefield and I say, hey, are you with me? And they say, we're with you. It's more than just we're near you. It's no, we are running the same direction. We are oriented the same. John says the word was with 
God. And the word was fully God. And then he wraps it up. He kind of closes this little package by repeating his original statement. The word was with God in the beginning. And he's encapsulating this radical, startling idea, this startling concept. Because he says, I need you to get this because this is essential for understanding what's coming. So verses one and two are this opening salvo of an incredible just message he's about to present about the word. The next thing he says in verse three is he says that all things were created by him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. John is now ascribing the power of creation. He's attributing it to the word. And more so than just saying, yeah, like they knew that God spoke. God said, let there be light. And there was light. Let there be day and night. Let there be oceans. Let there be an earth. Like they knew that God's words were powerful. But here, John is saying that the word of God is a part of creation. That all things were created by him. That there is nothing in creation that can be distinct from him. That all things were created by him. Everything. And this is startling. Again, he just keeps hammering these startling points for his audience because they knew that God the Father created all things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They knew that the Spirit of God was involved in creation, that the Spirit of God hovered over the waters, that, that when God spoke about creating mankind, he says, let us, let us make them in our image. They knew that God is one and yet there's this plurality, there's this multi-personhood of the Lord, but what they did not realize what John is now revealing is it wasn't just God the Father, it wasn't just God's Spirit, but it is in fact the Word, this pre-existent, always eternal, existing Word of God was a part of creation. And it's not, again, just his spoken words, it's him. John is ascribing personhood to the Word of God. And he's active, he worked, he created. And in him was life. And the life was the light of or for mankind. And the light shines on in the darkness, but the darkness has not mastered it. John is still calling back to that Genesis 1 creation account, using these terms that were so familiar to the Jewish audience that God, the first thing God made was let there be light, right? He created light. Eventually, he separated light from darkness and he put the heavenly uh, bodies in the sky so that they could sustain life on earth, right? He created light and darkness. He created these divisions before he made fish or birds or animals. And what John is saying here is that it's in the word, in this word of God, where that life actually came from. It's in this word that the light was presented, John continues with a very, uh, this strong theme of light and darkness throughout his gospel. And many times the darkness, it's not just the absence of, absence of light. It's not a shadow, it's not a dark room. When he speaks about darkness, more often than not, he's describing uh, ignorance. He's describing a, a sense of being lost, of even a, uh, the state of people being deep and dead in sin. That's the darkness he's describing. And so he says that this light, in fact, shines on despite the darkness. And that even though the darkness might seem overwhelming, even though the darkness might seem so prevalent and so present, he says that this darkness hasn't mastered the light. 
can't overcome the light. So the light continues to shine regardless of what it might feel like in any given day, in any given situation. The light has come for all mankind. And now John is gonna shift gears a bit and he's gonna talk about one of the first witnesses about this light. He says in verse six that a man came, sent from God, whose name was John. And he came as a witness to testify about the light so that everyone might believe through him. So John the apostle, the author of this letter, of this book, he's describing the, the work of another John, of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah to declare that God's Messiah was coming soon, that the Savior was imminent. And so he went out in the desert, he was proclaiming the truth, he was prophesying, he was sent from God. That's a powerful term. This is a term that was used in scripture to describe prophets, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, these different individuals who came as, as the spokespersons for God to the nation of Israel. He says, John the Baptist, he was sent from God. That carried a lot of weight. That carried a lot of power, right? You're like, whoa. Sent from God. It's if you're in a workplace and, and someone's like, who are those guys in suits? They're from corporate. You're like, oh, yikes. John the Baptist was sent from God. Why? To be a witness. Another theme that is throughout John's gospel, this, this, this idea of eyewitness accounts, of testifying. He says, John the Baptist served as a witness to testify about the light so that people, so that everyone might believe through his testimony. Just as through the word all was created, he says, through John's testimony, all might believe. And just to really clarify what was maybe confusing for some of his original audience, John the author then makes sure he hammers in. He says, he himself, John the Baptist, he was not the light, but he came to testify about the light, that true light, the one who gives light to everyone who's coming into the world. One scholar puts it this way, he says that, that John the Baptist, he was not the light, but he was a lamp. He carried that light with him. He carried that message of redemption. He carried that incredible promise of salvation. There was confusion where people thought, oh, is John the Baptist, is he the Messiah? Is he the chosen one? And John the Apostle is really clarifying. Once for all, he says, no, that is not the case. He was simply a messenger, right? He was simply a witness, a testifier about the true light. This term for true, it's more than just describing something as genuine. Again, man, in the Greek, this is so rich. He's speaking about not just the genuineness of this light, but it's the ultimateness, the supremacy of this light. He says he came to deliver and describe and declare this incredible light given to all people, this light that shines on in the darkness, that comes into the world, he was not, in fact, the light himself, right? I'm not personally on the A&M football team. It might be shocking. But I'm the 12th man, right? I mean, I'm not 
technically the 12th man because he's on special teams and stuff. But like I am, I embody the spirit of that agony. I still hold arms and cross legs and sing about UT for some reason still. Like I, I do that because I am carrying the light with me. John the Baptist came to declare the goodness, the incredible promise of salvation through the true light who is coming into the world. And yet, even as this light is presented to all people, what's so tragic, the bad news is John the Apostle goes on into the next verse. In verse 10, he says that the true light, he was in the world and the world was created by him, but the world did not recognize him. He came to what was his own, but his own people did not receive him. He says the word came to, to home turf. And the, the word came to what he had created, to his beloved creation. He came into his own property, came to what was his own, and yet the world, the cosmos, all of existence, it did not recognize him. And here, again, in the Greek, this is a very important term. This lack of recognition is not simply an intellectual disconnect. It's not ignorance. What he's describing here, this, this lack of recognition is not an intellectual disconnect. It is a willful rejection. It is a willful rejection, a refusal to believe in what is presented, a refusal to believe in this word who came to what was his own and even more tragically went to his own people who did not receive him. In fact, if we kept reading in the gospel of John, we would see that the first 11, 12 chapters hold within them seven different miraculous signs, wonders, and works of the word of God. And that these miraculous signs are presented and performed for the expressed purpose of bringing God's people, the descendants of Abraham, back to the Lord. But in John 12, we're told that those signs, that those wonders, that those works, they didn't do it that the people of God still rejected him. They still chose their own created religious practices and faulty beliefs instead of relying on the new, revealed, amazing, miraculous word who came to them and yet was rejected, who spoke to them and shined to them yet was not received. This is tragic. It's terrible. But then we have good news. In verse 12, John goes on to say, but however, thankfully to all who have received him, those who believe in his name, he has given the right to become God's children, children not born by human parents, by human desire, or even a husband's decision, but by God. John is revealing the incredible beauty and truth of our gospel right here. He says, even though there are some who reject the light, who re do not receive the word, he says, there are those who do. There are those who have received him. There are those who have believed 
in his name. And now what's so interesting about this statement is that John has not yet named the word of God, right? He doesn't get there until verse 17. It's Jesus, spoiler alert, right? But that's, he's building. He's building to that, that culminating revelation in verse 17. And so here, he's not trying to say that there's some sort of mystical, salvific power in just the syllables that make up the name Jesus. What he seems to be referring to here, this belief that brings a right to become God's child, this belief, this reception, it is believing in, it is receiving the full revelation of the word of God, his divine name. It's believing in the entirety, in the revealed person of the word of God. That is what then gives a person the right to become God's child. And what's so really, again, just staggering in this little short two verses is John is presenting the tension that we often feel of human responsibility and divine sovereignty. John is saying that there is a human responsibility to believe, right, to receive, that there is those who reject and there are those who receive. He says, but yet at the same time, my belief and reception then brings the right to God's divine choice to birth this person as his child. It's that divine mystery, significance of human responsibility, yet the supremacy of God's sovereignty somehow they coexist. John says that we have been shown this light and blessed be those who receive it, who believe in this name of the word of God. For then you have the right to become God's child. And now what's so significant here for his audience, again, in the Greek, when he says that they are not born by human parents, literally in the Greek what he's saying is he says they're not born by the bloods. And so what he seems to be getting at is that it is not your lineage, it's not this blood connection that in fact makes you God's child. Because there is a confusion in the Jewish people and the descendants of Abraham. They thought, man, if I'm just like in that line of descendants, then I'm okay. Right? Like I'm in the crew. Some of us maybe even grew up thinking that, that that's how Christianity worked, that, well, my parents are Christians, or they, you know, remember, they went through confirmation, whatever, and because of that, like, I'm there. And, you know, there's, there's an old, there's an old pastor illustration, I remember hearing it when I was in youth, that, well, you know, you can sit inside a garage, but don't make you a car, and I'm like, yeah, that's true, I suppose. But being in that line, you know, it's a little, it's not a perfect illustration. I think of it more of just, you know, I could be born of Aggies. My parents work at A&M. They actually didn't attend A&M, so I don't, I don't know what that makes them. But I was not born of Aggie students. And, and if you, even if you are, it doesn't make you an Aggie, right? Like you could be an Aggie fan. You could be an Aggie supporter. Good for you. You should be. It's God's will for your life. But... But don't, not really. But God, or but if I 
am willing to go to A&M, to be accepted, to go through the process, to get that diploma, to get that ring, like that's when I actually become an Aggie. Before that, I might be a fan, I might be a supporter, but I'm not a true Aggie. I have to make that step. I have to go through that process. John is telling his audience, it is not enough to look at your family tree and trace it to Abraham. He says, that's not gonna cut it. He says, it is not the blood, the bloods that bring you into God's family. It's not by human desire, which is describing, you know, it could be a desire to conceive a child. It could also be describing just human volition. Again, there's that tension, right? There's human responsibility, yet there's also divine sovereignty. It says we can't just like make ourselves better. I can't just decide to make myself a child of God. It's not possible. He says it's not the husband's decision, right? He says it's not just this work that, you know, a husband and a wife come together and there's a baby. If you have questions, we can talk about it after the service. So, you know, we'll get there. But he says it's not those things that make you God's child. Instead, it is the reception, it is the belief in the name of the word that then you have the right to become God's children, born of God, by God. All the world is not full of God's children. There are those who are lost and confused and far from the Lord, who are deep and dead in their sin. They're enemies of God, as we all once were. But John is reiterating that it is through the belief and reception, the acceptance of the name of the word of God, that's how we are then brought into the family of the Lord. We can become sons and daughters of the Lord Most High. He says, and this, this is how that came about. Verse 14, he says that the word became flesh and took up residence among us. And we saw his glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth, who came from the Father. He says, Another startling, unbelievable statement. It says this word, this divine preexistent being who is in the beginning with God, who is God. It says this word became, was made, literally in the Greek, it was made flesh. And sometimes we, we blur these lines and we think, well, you know, we talk about it. And we don't have malicious intent, but sometimes we get a little confused when we talk about, we might say that Jesus took on flesh or that Jesus, you know, like was, was transformed. And, and, and John is being really clear. When he says that the word was made flesh, he is pointing to another one of those divine mysteries that Jesus is in fact, that the word of God was fully divine and yet also fully human. This term he uses for flesh, he could have said body, he could have said, uh, you know, man, but he doesn't. He doesn't use these terms that could lead to confusion where people are like, well, maybe uh, the word was just, you know, like manifested as human or just appeared human or fully transformed into human. He's saying it's not like that. There is yet this, this wild divine tension once again that the word became flesh, flesh being this intentional term that is referring to all of a human existence that is distinct from divinity, right? We as people are made Material and immaterial. We're told that right from the get-go in the Genesis creation account. 
We are material, and yet we are also immaterial. I have a body, I have a flesh, but I also have a spirit. And my spirit has a connection to the Lord, can have a connection to the Lord, but my flesh, it is distinctly different. My flesh as it is. It is distinctly disconnected from the divine. And yet, what John says is that the word was made flesh. And he took up residence. Literally, he pitched his tent among us. A callback, not just, not just to creation, but a callback to another significant, the most significant tent in all of Israel's history. His audience would immediately be thinking about the tent, which was the tabernacle, the, the tent of meeting, the place that God told Moses to build for his people as they were wandering the desert. He says, I want you to build this big old tent and I'm gonna use that tent to meet with you, to communion with you, to communicate to you. And John is saying that the tent was actually set up. A better, the ultimate, the true tent was actually established in the word. In the, the word became, that was made flesh. And it's through him that we now saw his glory. The weight, the splendor the glory of the one and only, the one of a kind. The term that we see in John 3 describing the only begotten. It says this is the one and only, the one of a kind who's full of grace and truth. Grace, this, this loving kindness of God. When he says grace and truth, it's this re reference, it's this callback to all these psalms and prophets that speak about the love and truth of the Lord, the hesed, this, this loving kindness of God. He says, that is what is contained, that is what is fulfilled in the word, who took up residence among us, who came from the Father. Some might be sent by God, but the word is the one pre-existent, pre fully eternal, who came from the Father. It says glory, grace, truth is found in this word, not in our creations, not, not in our own tents. And he goes back to speak about John the Baptist. He says that John testified about him and he shouted out, this one was the one about whom I said, he who comes after me is greater than I am because he existed before me. John the Baptist knew he had some idea, some understanding of the fact that Jesus of Nazareth was more than just his cousin. Right? They were cousins. And in fact, John was born at least about six months before Jesus was. And John began his ministry sometime before Jesus began his. And yet here, John is describing the supremacy of Jesus and, and he's attributing it to Jesus being first. But Jesus wasn't older. He hadn't been in ministry longer. But there was a part of John the Baptist that understood. No, he is, in fact, the one who has always been. Jesus himself told, he says in, later in John, that I am, before Abraham was, I am. I am the Lord. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the Lord. That's why John is so intentional at the beginning of his work, at the beginning of this book, to talk about that eternity past. This is a huge deal to recognize that Jesus is, in fact, Eternal, he's preeminent, he's preexistent. That, that he, you know, in Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew starts, he, he gives a genealogy of Jesus of Nazareth and he, and he goes all the way back to Abraham. He goes all the way from Abraham to Jesus. And it's like, whoa, that's a really, that's an impressive 
like lineage, right? Like your dad might get like super into genealogies. That's what they do when they get older. And that's like, they only can get back like maybe so many generations, right? Four, five, six, seven, maybe. Matthew starts, he says, I'm, gonna, I'm starting with Abraham. I'm going all the way to Christ. Luke is like, bro, here we go. He starts with Jesus and he actually traces Jesus of Nazareth all the way back to Adam. He's like, show me what you got. Meet me outside, right? Like, let's see. Let's see. But John, he looks at those genealogies in Matthew and in Luke. He's like, hold my cup of water because I'm about to blow your guy's mind and I'm starting an eternity past. He says, that's the word of God. It doesn't, didn't begin with Abraham, didn't even begin with Adam. And so John the Baptist, on some level, understood this. That's why John the Baptist knew that he himself was not the light. He says, this is the one. He, the one who's coming after me, is greater than me because he, in fact, existed before me. And because of this, John the Apostle, the author, now reaches his culminating statement, the culminating point, the the climax of this opening salvo in his letter. He says, for we have all received from his fullness one gracious gift after another. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came about through Jesus Christ. He names him. He says, the word was made flesh. The word was with God. The word was God. The word brought light. The word brings life. He created and sustains all of existence, and he has now come to us full of grace and truth in the person of Jesus Christ. This is him. And here, John is talking about this grace in exchange for grace. Again, we lose a little bit of it in the English, but when he talks about this one gracious gift after another, sometimes it's translated grace upon grace. Um, Sometimes it's like, you know, lavish, lots and lots of grace, but what's being described here is he's not creating a contrast between Jesus and the law. That's something that maybe we think at times, that's not at all what he's presenting. When he talks about gracious gift, one gracious gift after another, literally the term here is he says, grace in exchange for grace. Grace for grace. We're exchanging one grace for another. And so John here, he's not knocking the law. Jesus never knocked the law. Paul never knocks, like the law is good. The law was a grace, right? The law was given through Moses to reveal God's practices. That was a gracious gift that God gave to his people. When he brought Moses up on the mountain, he says, here's the law, here are my commandments. Take these to my people. That was a gracious gift because we have been designed. We need some form of structure. We need to know where success is found and where failure happens. Like we wanna know these boundaries. I, in my house, I got three little kids. Man, nothing gets them going like a sticker chart. That holds so much power. Why? Because they thrive, they excel in knowing, okay, these are the goals. This is my purpose. This is my task. And I'm gonna put Chase from Paw Patrol in that box and it's gonna eventually lead me to the glory of an ice cream trip, right? Like that's, that's something that we all are designed with. God put perfect humanity in a garden 
right? An enclosed space. And now with the goal of eventually spreading, but he says, I, I want you to recognize that my boundaries are good. That's where life and flourishment happens in the right boundaries. So when God gave his people the law, it was a gracious gift. John is not discounting that. Jesus never discounted that. Paul never discounts that. That the law was in fact its own grace. But the law, as great as it was at communicating the practices of God, it was insufficient. And so even as the law was given through Moses, that grace was exchanged for the grace and truth that came through Jesus Christ. Because as much as the law was beneficial and gracious in showing us how to live and obey according to the Lord's will, it was never the full story. It was never the full person. The law communicated the practices of God, but Jesus crossed the gap overcame the separation, and he came in order to reveal not just the practices of God, but the person of God. Why he could tell his followers, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That had never been done before. John even really hammers this home in this last verse. He says, no one has seen God. No one's ever seen God. People have caught glimpses. They understand bits and pieces of who God is, but he's in in the, in the Greek, he starts with the word God, like just to hammer this in. He says, God, no one has seen. He says, but now the only one, that only begotten, that one and only, that, that one special, one of a kind, who is himself God, who is in closest fellowship with the Father, he has made God known. Church, this is the incredible beauty, the foundation of our faith, of our gospel of our messes that we've been trusted with, that the God of the universe, that the God of all creation, that not only does he care about creation, but he has revealed himself fully, that we don't just have little puzzles to put together to try to understand him, that we're not trying to search out his will in the stars or in the way that you know, leaves blow in the wind, that we have been given the opportunity to have a relationship, to be made children of God, to call him our father. Whereas before, we never could have seen him. We couldn't see him because he was spirit, because he is spirit, and because we are sinful. But Jesus, the word of God, came and became flesh, and he died a sinless death that covers over our separating sin. And now, by receiving, by believing, by accepting that name, we can be born again. And we can enjoy fellowship, relationship, fatherhood with the Lord now and for eternity. We can't miss this. We should never stray far from this foundation. It's, it's something that grounds us in every situation, in every circumstance, whether we're riding high or whether we're going through something really tough. I'll tell you that on, at the funeral on Wednesday, 
I was so thankful and grateful that in the midst of that memorial service, in the midst of remembering and celebrating the life of a man who was dedicated to the work and the word of God. In the midst of that, we were grieving and we were mourning. And some of you might know that family and you're grieving and you're mourning, you're lamenting because death is terrible. Death is always terrible. But in the midst of that grief, in the midst of that mourning, that sorrow and that weeping, time and time again, we were reminded that we grieve with hope that we can hold fast through thick and thin, through highs and lows. We hold fast to this truth that Jesus has made God known and that we're not just hoping, like wishfully thinking that someday I'll be with Andy Rettenmeyer again. I am confident. I am secure. I am convinced of that which I have not yet seen that he is in the beauty and splendor of our God's presence, and that one day we're gonna be hanging out all over again. Not because we did enough, not because we served enough, because we gave enough, but because we received and accepted and believed the name of Jesus Christ, the word of God. This morning, we are taking some time here at the end of our service to observe communion. And this is something that we do as a church, not because it's you know the law, it's not because we're just like, well, let's just go about this monthly practice and ritual. But when we take communion, when we observe the Lord's Supper, it's an opportunity for us to come back to this truth, to come back to this foundation. So if you walked, as you walked in, um, maybe you grabbed a cup from a basket. If you didn't, that's okay, you can raise your hand. We've got some deacons that are gonna make their way around. If they see your hand, they'll come to you. But these cups with a little kind of bread thing and some juice, these cups are not mystical, salvific elements of, of power. But what they are, it's an opportunity for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. This is a family practice. For those of us who have believed in Jesus Christ, who have accepted the name, the word of God, we've been commanded by the word himself to remember, to come together, to break bread, to drink from a cup, and in doing so, remember and reflect and rejoice in his body that was broken, in his blood that was spilled, in the word that was made flesh, in the sinless life that was sacrificed for us. Because this is our foundation. This is our hope. So I'm gonna read to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul is describing this practice for the church. He says that I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you, so do this in remembrance of me. If you would, take the bread.
Paul says that in the same way, Jesus also took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So do this every time you drink it in remembrance of me. If you would, take the cup. Paul wraps this up with a powerful reminder. He says that every time you eat this bread, every time you drink this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Southwood, this is our hope. The word became flesh, that his body was broken, that his blood was spilled so that we might believe and be born as children of God. So as we prepare to sing about the will of God in our lives, I would love for us to just take some time to thank the Lord for that incredible gift that he's given us. That if we believe in Jesus Christ, if we've accepted his name, then, then we rejoice. We say, God, I'm so thankful for what you've done for my sake. I did not deserve it. I did not earn it. Yet you've given it freely. And for others of us that have not yet trusted, my hope, my prayer is that in this time, you would wrestle with that truth. That you would speak with the Lord, that you would just cry out in your heart and mind and say, God, I, 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 maybe I wanna believe, or God, these are the reasons that I, I just can't. Ask the Lord to meet you where you are, to speak, to transform, to give you that faith in our Lord and Savior, in the Word, Jesus Christ. So if you would, pray with me. God, we are thankful that you have revealed your fullness. That God, that we have a, a, a such marvelous, comprehensive understanding of who you are, not because of words that were written down, not just not because of mysteries that we've been able to solve, but God, because you sent Jesus Christ. That he overcame the gap, that he stepped over the separation. God, thank you. Thank you that that is the foundation of our faith, that it's not our work, it's not our ability but it's your loving kindness and your truth. So if you would take this moment, again, express thanks and gratitude for the Lord, for what the Lord has done, or ask the Lord to meet you where you are, to provide the faith that brings life.